When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from across Ukraine, discuss developments and the key dates in the US and EU Ukraine funding saga, and we analyse an extraordinary story that's emerged here in the UK, how the FSB have spent years stealing emails and spying to damage British democracy. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 8th of December, one year and 287 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes, and, making his debut on the podcast, our chief reporter Rob Mendick. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. So last night, Ukraine's air defences shot down 14 of 19 cruise missiles fired by Russia. Overnight, they announced it this morning, Ukraine's Air Force spokesperson said. This is thought to be the start of the campaign by Russia, the winter campaign by Russia that we've been expecting. It's the first time we've seen the heavy bomber, the Tu-95 Bear, for a number of weeks, I think, in fact, going into months and we, although the majority were intercepted, 14 out of 19, according to Ukraine's Air Force, there were civilian deaths and injuries from those that, that landed. However, otherwise, not much damage. And those strikes were mainly across the centre of the country. Interestingly, those strikes were not coordinated with drones, the Shahid 131 and 136, that we would expect and we thought we were going to see. So in recent weeks, we've seen Shahids being fired, we think, to probably or to light up Ukraine's air defence network, so Russia knows where and when to probe or to waste missiles and the um well most of the air defenses the point air defenses are bullets basically like the gepard fired fired from the um you know the twin 35 mil cannons but surprisingly last night they weren't coordinated so it was just the cruise missiles and the majority were shot down now yuri inyat who's the uh who's the air force spokesperson he was speaking on on television and he said that mainly the central region of dnipro petrovsk was hit there Separately, Ukraine's ground forces command spokesperson, Lieutenant Colonel Vladimir Fitchio, 
He was speaking this morning. He said Russian forces have lost about a thousand, sorry, eleven thousand personnel, both killed and wounded, in the Kupiansk, Liman, and Bakhmut areas from November earlier this year. And then they make the point that operational tempo is lower than in Avdivka, which suggests that the the Russian casualty rate there is going to be much higher than that. I'll come on to that in a moment. But Ukrainian officials have previously reported that Russian forces lost about 5,000 personnel killed and wounded around uh, Avdivka and Marinka, which is just to the west, between October the 10th and the 26th. That was in the first two waves of these heavily mechanised assaults to capture Avdivka. The third wave, as, as, I mean, it's been, a, it's been a non-stop effort, but we think there's, there's three sort of periods that they've been described as these three waves. This third wave is currently much more infantry-led, either in an apparent or in an effort to conserve the armoured vehicles that have been lost or because they are not there anymore. And Russia seemed content to accept the much higher casualty figure uh, that that is, uh, that is generating. Geolocated imagery from Tuesday, or that was taken on Tuesday and just released yesterday, suggests Russia has made marginal gains to the northeast of Avdivka, but countered by Ukraine's marginal gains to the northwest. Remember, there's two prongs to the envelopment around Avdivka. One sort of go around to the, to the north and the east and one to the north and the west. So still a lot of fighting, but no significant tactical breakthroughs from either side there. Now, the ISW, Institute for the Study of War, saying that Russian forces may be suffering losses along the entire front at a rate close to that which Russia is able to generate new forces. I've just come out of a briefing with a Western official and I asked them specifically about that idea, that contention, and they agreed with those kind of figures. So very roughly... What Russia is is able to generate, they are also losing straight away at the front. So on the one hand, and you can park for one moment any moral considerations about what Putin's doing to his people, sustainable for now possibly, but uh, you know, can he get through to the presidential elections in March without that, this cost to society becoming more obvious or even resulting in, in Ukrainian advances? So, so stand fast the moral calculation, but it just speaks of it's an unsustainable model. Something is going to have to happen. He's going to. Ha- he's been very reluctant after the initial mobilisation, which then saw very minor protests. I mean, nothing significant. We can't get overblown about that. But saw about a million fighting age males leave the country. So hence, he's been attempting mobilisation by stealth since then. That is not going to work for any any much longer. They're just not generating the numbers they need to do anything. And the the assessment is that. He's still got his maximalist aims. He still wants the whole country. He still wants to take Kiev. He's not just in, he's not just content with the um, the line he's got at the moment. Now he might try and hold this line until the end of next year, hoping that a, a possible second Trump presidency would see the the whole Western resolve collapse. But he's not at all rode back from um, ridden back from his maximalist aims. Now just to a bit shotgun now, if I if I may. But I've just as I say come out of a brief with a Western official, so. So a lot of bits and pieces, but very interesting. And the official said that looking at the Black Sea, they described the Black Sea as dynamic. Now, I, I mentioned this because we've talked about this before, that while the the land campaign may have uh, maybe not be moving very far, it's incredibly violent, but the lines aren't moving very far. But, of course, war is bigger than just one domain, just the land domain. And what's happening in the Black Sea is, quite frankly, incredible, as in, Ukraine have managed to push the Black, Russia's Black Sea fleet largely out of Sevastopol back to Novorossiysk in Russia or further east around Crimea from Sevastopol. But Russia is not able to exert itself 
to any great degree across the Black Sea such that they can fire calibre cruise missiles into Odessa and the other ports. So the grain trade is back up to figures that, that you would expect and hope Ukraine to be able to achieve and that, that they had been achieving when the grain deal was on. So they've managed to achieve all that without a navy, which is quite staggering. But anyway, so the Black Sea is, is very, very dynamic. Western officials said that on December the 5th, an Su-24, Russian Su-24 fencer fighter bomber was shot down in a vicinity of Snake Island and a twin only just got away. They generally operate in pairs. The twin only just escaped. They made the point that since the summer, Russia has continued crude strike attacks. That's C-R-E-W-E-D, as in having pilots in it, not just drone uh, attacks against Snake Island, which is purely symbolic. Russia wants to take Snake Island for the sake of it. It has no military utility or absolutely minimal military utility to Russia. And the defence official said, the Western official said that the Russian aircraft losses are running at about 90 for the whole campaign so far. Now then, the uh, officials also said, again, as we've been assessing, very little prospect of a major operational breakthrough by either side in 2024, so the whole of next year. Neither side has the mass or any or the uncommitted resource to do anything that we saw like in the likes of Kharkiv or Hezon earlier this year and late last year. So yeah, we, we do expect next year to be, uh, for Russia, a year of trying to hold on and see if Donald Trump gets in, see what happens to Western Resolve, and for Ukraine to take the time to build up the training forces incorporate air power the f-16s on their way that kind of thing and try and get the have the ability to affect combined arms activity on the battlefield to a much greater degree than they've been able to in the past but the comment from um, from the western official was economic resolve as in from the west is as important as results on the battlefield now they said that russia is losing around avdivka about a thousand casualties a day that's wounded and killed that was the average in november and has been replicated so far through december so a thousand a day and back to the point i made at the start that's just that's just in avdivka so you know they're losing other people up and down the line around liman bakhmut kupiansk so hugely hugely manpower intensive which is why the isw is saying i think accurate to say that they're just not able to generate any forces in Avdivka, Ukraine is said to be very heavily entrenched in a strong defensive position. They did make the point, though, that the loss wouldn't change the battlefield dynamic. Avdivka has been described as a sort of gateway, not only to Donetsk City to the east, but as far as Russia is concerned, a, a kind of gateway further out to the west. But uh, defence officials, sorry, I keep saying that, it's, it's Western officials, were saying that the loss wouldn't change the battlefield much. And there is still very heavy Russian political direction given to the generals, which is a polite way of saying meddling. Now, they do go on. Russia's uh, losses have been horrendous. They are estimating, including Wagner and all the other sort of proxy forces and and the the so-called People's Republics and what have you, they're assessing that Russia has lost 320,000 people, wounded, killed, missing, and um, prisoners of war, with about 70,000 dead. Their training cycle for new recruits has gone down from two months to two weeks. And Ukrainian losses, although less thought to be high, but Western officials are not tracking them. They've got their assets looking at the Russians, so they haven't got a very accurate figure or haven't got a figure for Ukrainian losses. But they did make the point that the medical chain is much better, rehabilitation is better, and just the moral, uh, the way they, they way they do warfare, the, the Ukrainian way of war is to not, uh, not go for these meat assaults, so-called, as Russia have been. Now, Russian government spending, as we reported earlier this week, for next year is going up 
on defence, 40% of the budget on defence. That's more than health and education combined. That is not sustainable. They are gearing the economy for a long-term effort, but this is having there's personnel shortages in factories. The knock-on implications of that is that they are having to churn out greater quantities but of much less sophisticated weapons, drones and shells, for example, as opposed to cruise missiles. And that was given for one of the reasons that this winter campaign by Russia might have been delayed. These um, They're saying they just haven't got the cruise missiles there to have a, have a, a sustained campaign. They said the, these estimates of Russia having about a thousand precision missiles that you may have seen in the in the press, having about a thousand uh, cruise missiles left, are way off. They wouldn't put a figure on it, but they said that a thousand was was way off. What else was there? Two more two more things. I asked about the um, these upticks in the strikes on the east of Crimea around the um, the Kirsch Bridge, and Western officials said that's what they. They've been seeing that as well and assess that that is... So I was worried that I was just seeing it because that just happens to be reported every now and again. I, I asked, is it actually, is there an uptick or is it just we've seen more reporting? They said, no, there is an uptick. And in terms of long-range strike, Ukraine is, quote, paying the Russians back in kind, all an effort to make the use of Crimea just just so logistically costly for Russia that they have to change the way they are trying to resupply their their people along the front and then just finally on the the um, U.S. congressional support, the, the money that's you know, not going through Congress, they were suggesting that the support for Ukraine will be will be fine through to early next year after what they've described a short delay. They said support is solid. Our support is not conditional on any battlefield breakthrough. So they're very solidly saying they're there behind Ukraine, but anticipating that they will get through this congressional sort of hold up at the moment. And I'll take a pause there, David. Well, thank you very much, Dom. Um, he's talked through quite a few updates there. Joe, what have you been looking at? Let's start with a fairly a fairly surprising story from Russia. We have had shocking news, and Dom almost sort of leaks it in his uh, military updates. But yeah, the shock news out of Russia is Russian dictator Vladimir Putin has confirmed today that he will run in the 2024 presidential election. And that's according to reports by the state news agency TASS. So this announcement Albert cements an extension to his already 24 years as Prime Minister and President of Russia. Uh, Putin apparently delivered this message to soldiers today during an award ceremony at the Kremlin. And here is what he told them. I will not hide that I have had different thoughts at different times, but it is now time to make a decision. I will run for the post of president. And I guess in more shock news, apparently some independent polling in Russia uh, shows support for Putin remains very strong. And the Russian leader apparently has a approval rating above 80%. Yet, so if I was a betting man, David, I would be going out to the bookmakers now and putting my money on him to secure a fifth term in office and retain power to at least 2023, uh, sorry, 2030. Let's go on to David Cameron. That's Lord Cameron, the Foreign Secretary. And Yesterday, he was in Washington urging US lawmakers to approve fresh aid for Ukraine to help fund Kyiv's battle against Russian forces. So on Wednesday, the US Senate blocked a White House request for $106 billion in emergency aid, so mainly for Ukraine and for Israel, but other sort of foreign policy priorities in there as well, such as the Taiwan Strait, etc., And Lord Cameron described this as a Christmas present to Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. It was a setback for Joe Biden, the US president, who has been sort of repeatedly urging US politicians in the Senate, in the Congress to approve funds, warning that 
Putin would not stop with victory in Ukraine and could even attack a NATO nation in the front. So David Cameron was at the Aspen Security Forum and he said we should pass this money to Ukrainians. We should back them and make sure that it's Putin that loses, because if that money doesn't get voted through, there are only two people that would be smiling. And he said one of them is Putin and the other one is Xi Jinping in Beijing. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to give either of those a Christmas present. Okay, more closer to home for me in Brussels. The European Union's um, executive body, the European Commission, is due to approve a proposal next week on using the proceeds from Russian assets frozen under sanctions. But there are doubts in France, Germany, Belgium, which means Ukraine may not get hold of any of this money anytime soon. So we're expecting to get the draft proposal, the draft law, sometime next week. That's as the week of a huge summit for Ukraine when the EU, the EU 27 leaders are going to decide on first a 50 billion euro package of financial aid for Ukraine. They might look at the 20 billion in weapons funding for Ukraine and they'll also be looking at Ukraine and whether it will be officially allowed to start formal accession talks to join the EU. So on a bit on the financial mechanism that they're looking at is there is basically lots of money has been seized mainly in Belgium actually which is essentially collecting interest payments so the proposal is looking from the commission rather than taking and seizing the actual funds that were frozen can we use the profits and skim them off the top and then take them on and use them to help pay for the reconstruction of Ukraine in the future in Germany they're questioning the is this legal can we actually do this in Belgium, where um, where these funds are held in a in sort of huge clearing houses and massive financial institutions in Belgium, and not linked to the EU, so private entities, they're saying, "Oh, is this going to be a problem for us? Because is this going to mean people go elsewhere for their business? Potentially, yes." Then let's have a quick look at the European Council summit. So, on a session talks for Ukraine, um, I've been reporting quite a bit recently that. Hungary is obviously being loudmouthed and essentially saying we're not going to block or we're not going to allow Ukraine to start a session talk. So, so Viktor Orban, the uh, Hungarian pres- prime minister, sorry, he was in France meeting the French president yesterday and he gave an interview to a French newspaper basically called Ukraine the, the most corrupt country in the world and said he wouldn't be allowing talks to proceed. One of the sort of the ideas that has been floating around is Victor Orban is using this as a ploy to sort of build up pressure and find leverage in order to to basically get a load of concessions out of e, his EU, other EU member states in the tune of sort of billions and billions of euros to talk up to 30 billion in sort of extra funds for Hungary. But I was actually at a, um, it was a Christmas party, but obviously lots of diplomatic sources and contacts there last night. And I was having a, a discussion with one of them. And this person told me that, oh, I've had a, coffee at a meeting with one of my Hungarian diplomats, diplomatic colleagues. And you know what, for once, I don't think Viktor Orban is bluffing. And that's a sort of an assessment I've made over the last few weeks as well. For I actually can't tell and I actually don't believe that Viktor Orban is bluffing. And so it's kind of looking bleak for Ukraine's prospects in terms of membership talks. Um, the other one is this 50 billion euros in funding, which is also being held up Uh, One of the big stumbling blocks there is Germany. So Germany have recently been hit by a constitutional court ruling there, 
which says they have this debt break that has been triggered and basically means they can't put any more put any more do any more public spending and um, they've cancelled 60 billion euros worth of infrastructure projects and green projects recently because of this and Ola Schultz has sort of privately admitted that look I can fund Ukraine but I can't fund the rest of the EU sort of requests so there's basically a discussion over 100 billion euro uptick for the EU's budget and 50 billion of that is due for Ukraine so sort of massive talks later next week. Thank you very much, Joe. Let's just stay on Russia for a few more points. Quite a few updates came through on the live blog yesterday. Putin was making quite a lot of noise. Um, can you talk us through some of the interesting things he said and the points he made? Yeah, so um, first of all, he said Russia is ready to cooperate with China in any area. And you remember, they basically, Russia and China signed up to this no limits friendship quite recently, and China has refused to condemn massively the war in Ukraine. So yeah, he, so Putin said Russia is ready to cooperate in China in any area, including military technology. So it's one of the fears that China could one day supply Russia with weapons, which would definitely turn the tide. So this is what Putin had to say, as we think about the future, the future world order and about assuring our security, we're letting go of the traditional buy and sell relations. We're thinking about the future, thinking about technology. There we go. Yeah, that was Putin at an investment conference. Um, Vladimir Putin has also said the, the, the Western financial system is obsolete. So on Thursday, he described the Western financial system as obsolete and said Russia hit by Western sanctions, such as the deconnection, deconnection from the SWIFT international payment system, has proved it can overcome any challenge. Yet, and this is what Putin said, the monopoly of large Western banks would come to an end in the coming years because of a technological revolution. He added that he hoped... Russia's uh, GDP, which I just said, would grow by 3.5% this year. And that is after a 2.1% contraction in 2022. And here we go. Some sort of, as uh, David Cameron was alluding to, giving a good Christmas present to the Kremlin. The Kremlin has announced that it hopes US lawmakers will continue to block the White House request for $106 billion of emergency aid for Ukraine and other projects. So, And this is what Dmitry Peskov uh, the Kremlin spokesman said, it is to be hoped that there will remain enough people with sober minds among the American congressmen. So yeah, probably David Cameron was spot on there. And anyone blocking funds for Ukraine is only serving up Christmas gifts for Russia. I'll stop there. Well, thank you very much, Joe, for talking us through all of those updates. I think that's probably quite enough of Putin and Peskov. Uh, let's go to our uh, chief reporter, Rob Mendick. Rob, you've written up a an astonishing long article about essentially a, a campaign to undermine British democracy originating in Russia, uh, involving hacking, phishing and more. What can you tell us about this story? Well, sat around yesterday, fairly quiet day, actually, um, and then got a note to say, could you listen into the House of Commons into Parliament? Leo Doherty, who's the Minister for Europe, stood up to make a statement to the House and blow me if he didn't tell us that Russia was undermining meddling with British democracy by all sorts of nasty cyber hacking of hundreds of, and the scale is huge, I think, MPs, peers, journalists, dare I say, NGOs, civil servants, senior civil servants, and although he didn't say it, Leo Doherty, as we report in The Telegraph today, amongst those hacked into, or at least the friend of, or the colleague of Sir Richard Dearlove, former head of MI6, Cabinet Minister Liam Fox, I think, was had his emails hacked into, and all sorts of senior people. 
this really is the Kremlin's way, I think, of really meddling in what we do. What they're hacking, I think, is largely private emails. In the case of Richard Dearlove, they hacked into the ProtonMail account of a colleague of his. Now, ProtonMail is pretty secure stuff. So this suggests pretty sophisticated uh, hacking operation run out of Russia, really with the, the, the specific interest of sort of undermining and messing about with our own domestic system. And I think what I think is kind of interesting also, David Cameron, Lord Cameron now stood up afterwards and said in a statement said Russia's attempts to interfere in UK politics are unacceptable and seek to threaten our democratic processes. And then said this next bit, despite their repeated efforts, they have failed. And I think in one sense they failed because they didn't alter the course of a general election in one sense. But they succeeded in many ways because things did get hacked and things did get leaked. And so, for instance, in the 2019 election, Jeremy Corbyn versus Boris Johnson. Yes, Jeremy Corbyn lost, but he did score points at one point by introducing into the debate documents that we now know. And Jeremy Corbyn, I should stress to say, didn't know at the time, had been leaked, had been hacked by the Russians and put out into the public domain for Corbyn to use. In this case, and it was over about 400 and so I've my head, 430 pages of trade documents that Liam Fox had as International Trade Secretary on discussions between the UK and the US post-Brexit. And Jeremy Corbyn in the 2019 election, which he did lose and lose by some distance, which I think is why David Cameron says it failed. And I'll raise the quote if I can only find it, says Jeremy Corbyn stands up and says, this is proof that the NHS is on the table for discussion. So And it made big waves at the time. Other stories did too. And I think what's interesting about this is that we, it's very hard to measure if we had a close election next time and things start to get leaked and put out there. Journalists don't know what they're using. Journalists don't know where things are coming from. And good stories are good stories. And if things start circulating on the internet and then get picked up, that's difficult for people to know who's behind it and what their motives are. I suspect the next election may not be close, but it might be. And this is really worrying. Now, security sources and others I spoke to insisted that this Leo Doherty statement put out yesterday in conjunction with the National uh, Cyber Security Centre and others, and also in conjunction with the American Department of Justice uh, and other members of Five Eyes, suggested that the timing of this was simply nothing to do with coming election that we've got here and coming election in the US, but purely to do with the fact that they were able at this stage to call out the perpetrators of this cyber hacking. And in this case, it's quite specific. And it's the FSB, which obviously the successor to the KGB. And within the FSB, they run a unit called Centre 18. And Centre 18 is responsible for running a series of cyber hacking groups, or at least I don't think they are a series of cyber hacking groups. I think it's one cyber hacking group, but with an awful lot of names. And the one the British called them out on yesterday is one called Star Blizzard. But it also goes by the name of Cold River and other names. So previously, Cold River had been blamed for the hack on Sir Richard Dearlove. I think we can now say with some certainty that Cold River, Star Blizzard and whatever else you want to call it, are all these cyber hacking groups linked to Centre 18 and run by them. In this case, we've sanctioned two individuals, and the US Department of Justice has indicted these same two individuals. And I'm going to go for the pronunciation now. One is called Andrei Koronets, and the other is Ruslan Perachyatko. 
Ruslan Perichyatko is, I think, the handler. He's an FSB intelligence agent, say the British and the Americans, but he's also a member of Star Blizzard. Mr. Coronets is a member of Star Blizzard. He's a he has a criminal conviction in Russia for hacking, cyber hacking, and we know this because Reuters questioned him about it back in January, and he rather sweetly said, yes, that's me, but no, I'm not involved in uh, this international sort of cyber hacking by the FSB, but um, we say otherwise. Uh, Mr. Coronet uh, did have a fairly public profile, so we know a bit about him, although he's since taken down most of his postings, but he's, he's, he's the classic. He's a, he's a bodybuilder. He's a hacker. Uh, he seems to like pigeons. Um, he's got a bit of a thing for a Russian figure skater whose name I can't now remember. And he's on a dating website, or was. He's curtailed a lot of that activity now. I did try and phone him yesterday, funnily enough, but he didn't pick up. I did speak to Richard Dearlove, who said to me, I think the government has now got so many incidents, they thought it was time to go public. He felt that the documents leaked in his case, which allegedly showed that he was trying to undermine Theresa May's Brexit withdrawal deal with some kind of harder Brexit, uh, he says were doctored and one shouldn't read too much into it. But it's all very murky and it's it's what Vladimir Putin wants to do and it's what the Kremlin wants to do, which is to muck about and to mess with our heads. But the timing is significant, I think, because we are going into an election year and we're not really going to know who's doing what to who and with what purpose. And that, I think that's very worrying. I think the other interesting thing is that they are successful in the hacking operation and have been in some cases. And that's hundreds of MPs private emails or hundreds of MPs and others, sorry, I mean, how many MPs? But these are private emails and that information is is there, presumably, waiting for Russia to shove it out there. We don't really know. We had a case of it at the Telegraph. Intriguingly, not the same bunch, I don't think, but back in 2020, we were contacted by the NCSC, I think it was, who said, ah, one of your reporters has had her uh, email imitated because the Russians are trying to get information on the state of the uh, investigation into the Skripal poisoning in Salisbury in 2018. And they impersonated one of our female reporters, who also happened to be blonde. And this was a sort of honey trap operation where the Russians were trying to get information out of the investigators into the Skripal poisoning by saying, claiming to be a journalist, saying, I've got some urgent information for you. And I think this bunch are doing something similar. They're setting up websites. They're sending off emails saying... You know, we're interested in talking to you and you may fall for it. Don't click on the links, links, chaps. What an extraordinary story. Thank you so much, Rob, for talking us through that. Just very quickly, because I know Dom uh, will have a question. Well, Dom will have questions for you. Um, <clears throat> if listeners want to read this, uh, the headline is former MI6 chief hacked by Russian security services. Uh, it's Rob Mendick, chief reporter, Matthew Field and Gareth Caulfield who've written the story. Um, we will put that, that we'll put a link to the story in the show notes. So do go and read it there. There's so much to talk about. There's, there's so much in it. Um, Dom Nichols. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Rob, you've been looking at these kind of groups for years, but since since the Skripal, really, Skripal attack back in 2018. Could you give us a quick potted history of the last few years of what you've been seeing from these groups, their evolution and kind of the sophistication from some of the attacks into the cyber realm and what they've been doing both to us and, and other, other actors across Europe? Yeah, thanks for that, Dom. Look, I'm no cyber expert, as Dom knows, but you see it all the time and we've been seeing it all the time. And I don't know 
there was a suggestion post Skripal that the Russians don't really have units much operating in the UK anymore, if at all. They were pretty good at that. And I think cyber is now where the Russians can hit us hardest, I think. And I think that is where we've seen it for a long time now in all sorts of hacks, leaks, attempts really from all sorts of different groups, from both the GRU, which I think was responsible for the one where they impersonated the Telegraph journalist, to the FSB, which what the British government are good at, I think, is calling these things out when they're ready to do so. They they, they won't just leak and give titbits. They wait until they've got the information there and then they'll call people out as and when they see fit. I don't think it's going to end any time soon, but I think what parliamentarians this morning will be waking up to is wondering, blimey, did I get done? Can I jump in then? Hi, Rob. Uh, good to hear from you. Um, I was vaguely listening back to the Rishi Sunak um, press conference, and he was actually asked about this. It was, I think, by our former colleague, Chris Hope. And he was basically almost brushed off the concern, saying, I think I'm pretty well protected. But as we know from sort of Boris Johnson's phone number having to be changed and because it was floating around for many years, are, are MPs and especially cabinet ministers actually that safe from these kind of hacks, do you think? Or have we been or have they been playing down the threat that this poses? Well, as I say, I think David Cameron saying, despite their repeated efforts, they have failed. As I say, I think he's addressing the it's classic politicians talk, isn't it? He's addressing the wider point of, of they failed to interfere in the processes and, and change the result. It's, it's not quite the same as they failed. And I suspect, I don't know who knows. I mean, Liz Truss, if memory serves me, didn't she take her phone on a trip to Moscow? And I think that was compromised, if memory serves me. I mean, that's extraordinary. I mean, I know that when I covered the Russia World Cup, actually, for a month in Russia, I took a burner phone with me because our company was so worried about what might happen. I took a burner laptop with me, if you like. Um, we were so worried about that. So I find it extraordinary that people were taking personal phones to Russia. And given what I know, because I also did things like the lockdown files, the WhatsApp messages, and poured through those of Matt Hancock, um, ministers and civil servants don't mind shoving things in messages. <laughs> which they think aren't going to be subject to an FOI or whatever it might be, and think they're being clever about it. And I think they have a very false sense of security. And so I don't think they really know what's out there. And I don't know how they can say it with any degree of confidence, that's for sure. I'd be a little bit nervous. Well, yeah, so it, it sort of strikes me. I know from when I go into more sensitive briefings, I'm asked to leave my mobile phone out. Certain embassy buildings around the world, they basically don't allow anyone with an outside mobile phone past beyond the second floor. They all have Faraday rooms, essentially, to stop communications coming in and out. So there's sort of precautions. But then it's, yeah, it's how do we navigate that risk when we're in the in the real world? Well, all I was going to say was, I mean, you know, that's fine in that bit of it, but they're, they're, they're pinging private emails to each other. And that's what government started doing. Things were conducted outside of the official sphere. So I think that's harder to monitor, number one. I think, number two, the fact that Richard Dearlove, via a colleague, his Proton Mail account, which is supposed to be super secure, is hacked into and documents taken and stolen or, or messages stolen, makes me think that if it can happen to Richard Dearlove, I don't quite see how a politician can be so certain it ain't happening to them. Well, thank you very much, Rob, for talking us through that story. That's absolutely fascinating. And just to repeat for our listeners, we'll put the link to that in the show notes for today. Let's move now then to our final thoughts. Joe Barnes, can I come to you first? 
Yeah, I just want to talk about there's a lot of jibber jabber in the Western world about sort of pressure on Zelensky and whether he should be holding elections or that kind of thing. And actually, I had a few conversations with Ukrainians on this, and they they see these sort of like these political rows, whether it be the generals versus Zelensky with the sort of the war of words between him and Zeluzhny, whether it be sort of Klitschko, who is technically an opposition politician, despite having lent his support to Zelensky over the war effort, taking barbs at him, and like the idea that politics is back in Ukraine. But um, one thing is for sure is actually that is probably being overplayed a little bit. As in, interesting, there was a member of Zelensky's party who took a sniper at Zeluzhny, and it was Zelensky's party, the, the sort of machine behind him, that were the first to sort of say, no, she was essentially talking at her ass. And it's things like that, that actually, maybe we think, are we slightly misjudging how Ukrainians see all of this when we're trying to look in from the bird's eye view and yeah, look in from afar for, via our crystal balls? And then, yeah, sometimes I think maybe we could be getting it a bit wrong in in quarters and well i guess that's what we're trying to do for our reporting and speak to as many ukrainians on the ground as possible because they're the ones that can actually tell us what is going on what is the sentiment and yeah like yeah what is the feeling and yeah so it's just interesting to know that actually the pressure inside ukraine doesn't seem to be on zelensky going to the negotiating table with russia to bring an end to the war it doesn't seem to be pushing zelensky into a corner where he has to break martial law and change the way Ukraine operates its constitution to hold elections, etc., to come up with and cement his place at the top of the country. Yeah, but that's something that's spoken about in the West, but actually in Ukraine, it's entirely different. Thank you very much, Joe. And just to say again, of course, um, listeners in Ukraine, please do email us, please do let us know what you think as well. Um, Dom Nichols. Thanks, David. So I've said in the past that uh, it's in Putin's interest for the world to look elsewhere whilst he gets on with um, all the war crimes and what have you in Ukraine to that extent. I mean, I've said I don't think Russia was behind instigating or or encouraging the uh, the trouble in Israel, Gaza at all, but they will, Putin will be looking at that and thinking, well, how can we best make use of this opportunity? But I don't think they were responsible for it in any way. What I think they might be, if not responsible for, they, I don't think they can totally say that they are just a, just an interested third party is what's happening right now in the in Venezuela-Guyana border in South America. I've done a this week's Defence in Depth film about it, but there's a very, well, a reasonable chance of violence in that area over oil and disputed land rights and, and borders and what have you. But there's very, very little in it for Maduro, Nicolas Maduro, the, the leader of, of Venezuela since 2013, because they've got masses of oil, Venezuela has, very close links to Russia, and I'm suggesting in Defence in Depth that it, it may have been instigated as another way of getting the world's attention elsewhere. So I'm asking you to divide your attention and go and have a look at something else. But I'm sure you've got the, the capacity to hold two things in your head at once. So please do go and have a look at that and just have a think about all these other bits and pieces that are going on in the world and why they may or may not be used by uh, by other other people such as Putin and, and the Russian regime, just to distract from what they're doing in Ukraine. But yeah, that's out now. Please do go and have a look and let me know what you think. Thank you. Thank you very much, Joe and Dom. Rob, as our guest and as a pod debut, would you like the very final words? And I do hope Dom has been very good in that studio and been helping you out. We'll, we'll pass on from that. I mean, he's, he's a nice enough chap, but not, not that helpful. No, I just, Dom. I think it's been, it, it, it's one of those things where I think that when I ever write these stories, I think, go, go and check my password. Don't click on links you don't know about. Beware blonde telegraph reporters 
sending you unsolicited emails out of the blue, albeit most of them are bona fide, but look out for Gmail accounts and things like that that don't look quite right. I think it's going to be an interesting six months, eight months, ten months, or whatever it is, up until an election here and in the US, where I think there's going to be all sorts of interesting stories that start to circulate. It's probably worth stopping and thinking, what's the origin and source of this material? It's an interesting one for journalists, because a good story is a good story. But who's behind it and why? We don't always know ourselves. We get sent information, given information. If it checks out and it's true, you write it. But there may be motives behind it. And that's, that's, that, that raises interesting debate and discussion. Um, watch this space, I guess, and let's see where it all heads. But worrying times. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, a world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. 